It's time to get chiseled with Rob Hamadari. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Chiseled. And why do we call it Chiseled? Because we're all a work in progress. I'm your host, Rob Commodore. I'm also the author of Better Than You Think. And today I have a special guest, John O'Leary. John, he back when he was a nine-year-old boy, he, he was playing with fire. And I got to say, I did that. As, I did it when I was a kid. Me and my brothers, we did it as a kid. And he was playing with fire and gasoline, and he created a massive explosion in his home and burnt 100% of his body. And he, was, he wasn't given a chance to live past that night, that first night. So in an epic story uh, uh, told or written by his parents, overwhelming odds, John overcame the odds and he, and he lives to tell, he lives to tell the story another day. Right, John? Um, yeah. And he's, he's inspired tens and thousands of people. He does it every year, speaks to over a hundred people in live audiences. He's been quoted or not. He's been quoted. It's been quoted as John being the best speaker we've ever seen by, by other uh, uh audiences so he's got a crazy schedule his emotional storytelling unexpected human humor and authenticity make his presentations unforgettable so john's a two-time number one national best-selling author his first book on fire the seven choices to ignite a radically inspired life is sold over two hundred fifty thousand copies and it's been translated in 12 languages and his second book in awe and i really want to dig into that a little bit because i love that title Rediscover Your Childlike Wonder to Unleash Inspiration, Meaning, and Joy. And it was published in May of uh, 2020. So, John, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm honored that you would take the time to be on this podcast with me today. Well, Rob, man, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the, that warm introduction. I think the listeners should lower expectations for the next uh, – this podcast as it rolls out. But uh, what, what a joy it is to be on your show. Chiseled, that, man. Yeah, yeah, we're all chiseled, right? We're all in the process of being evolved. So, so John, can you take us to give us some context? Can you take us back to that night that that young John O'Leary, nine years old, and give us an idea of, of where this this whole journey for you started and what it's amounted to? Yeah, you know, I'm going to go back a little bit less far in time because I think that's part of the story. If you really want to be chiseled in life, you got to be honest about what you're, you know, the marble you're cutting this thing out of. So, for me, in some regards, the turning point in my life wasn't being burned, although we'll talk about that. It was at age 28 when I'm working construction. And uh, a little girl said, Mr. O'Leary, would you share your story at my troop? This little girl's got troop. And I had never told Rob anybody ever how I was burned. Not guys I was working with, not college roommates, not fraternity brothers. Nobody knew what had happened to me as a little boy. The thing happened. It was painful. It was brutal. I recovered and moved on and never looked back. But on this date, when I was 28, I said, yes like an important word to utter to the opportunities of life. Like, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I spoke to this group of girls. It was three Girl Scouts in St. Louis County. I did a lousy job, was not even paid with a box of Samoas. So came in pretty low <laughs> on this one. Man. One of the dads, though, on the way out, he said to me, John, that was awesome. Would you share it at my Rotary Club? So I said, sure. And then one of those guys said, Qantas. I said, sure. And then a chamber, and then a small business. And over the last gosh, 18 years, I've spoken 2,500 times in front of several million people. A story ultimately about about what happens when we allow ourselves to be used for something bigger than ourselves. So that, like, that's the story that we're going to ha- get to celebrate today on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. What happens when you get used for something bigger than yourself? So where did this, the origin story come from or the Genesis story? Well, at age nine, like you hinted at, I saw boys in my neighborhood playing with fire and gasoline, assumed if they could do it, so could I. And with my mom and dad at work, the house was mine. I walked into the garage, bent over a can, gasoline, five gallons, poured the contents on top of a piece of paper that was on fire. And before the liquid even came out, Rob, the the fumes pulled the flame up into the canister, created a massive explosion, picked me up. And launched me 20 feet against the far side of the garage. Mm. So that's that's the starting point of this this journey forward. And so, and so it was long years of recovery. And like you said, it was awful. It was brutal. And, and we don't need to go live there. But it, it, how many how many years or how long was it from the time that happened to John was up? walking again yeah and but by the way like i don't mind going there anymore i used to but now i it's almost like once you like fully embrace the bad we can utilize it for good 
like in, in, through a spiritual lens, like that, that's a really big deal, but it's important in every aspect of life. Once you fully embrace the, the profound challenge of our life, looking backward, it also allows you to benefit from being chiseled for something even bigger than yourself going forward. So I, I'm not afraid of the scars anymore or the, the bandage changes anymore or the physical therapy sessions in the broom closets anymore or the amputation surgeries anymore. Like that's all part of our story. It chiseled, it chiseled us for something good. But to answer your question, I spent five and a half months in hospital, went through dozens and dozens of surgeries, a couple of years of therapy afterwards. And by about sixth grade, so about two years in, was back at school, back on my feet, back moving forward into my life, back acting ordinary, but profoundly physically and emotionally changed. And how tough was that? The, like you talk about the, the, the physical, I understand that, the emotional, I got to imagine that was very trying for you at times, correct? Yeah. And, you know, what, what do we do with the, the challenges of life? And for most of us, if it's not redeemed, we, we self-medicate in one way or another. Uh, we spent a lot of time on this, but what I try to do to self-medicate was to pretend like it never happened. You kind of heard me kind of talk about that at age 28. The fact that I never told anybody is me wearing a mask. Yeah. So I, I wore a mask when I went back to sixth grade school. Um, I masked with humor and I masked by being a little bit of a, of a bigger risk taker than anybody else in middle school. If someone else was going to jump six feet, I, I would jump off the eight foot wall. Like any, anything someone else would do, I would do even bigger and better to prove that I was ordinary. It, <laughs> it wasn't to become extraordinary or to become great. It was to fit in. Like that was the great goal of my life to just fit in. And Rob, I, man, I, I, I wasn't chiseled. I was bandaged. If you know, yeah. what I, mean. I was just wrapped with lies and, and a mask. And I did that in middle school and high school and college. I drank more than anybody else. Just trying to mask up with, with that. Even if you listen carefully at age 28, I was working construction. Yeah. Like what the heck is a guy without fingers who's scarred from his neck to his toes doing in construction? Yeah. I don't know. It's only in looking back, I realize what I'm doing. I'm trying to pretend to the world that I, I can do it too, uh, that I can fit in, that I can climb to the top rung and then go one more rung up. So, man, my whole life was, it wasn't a lie. It just wasn't fully genuinely mine. Yeah. When did you embrace it? Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, two things. It happened in over the course of three days. So it's, it's a turning point in my life. On a Tuesday, my cell phone rings and I flipped the thing open. So this dates me a little bit listeners, but I flipped the thing open and it's that girl scout. And she says, Mr. O'Leary, would you share your story? And I said yes to her. And that's a major turning point to say yes to a story you would have never said yes to before. So like what warmed the water for that thing to happen was what took place on the Sunday before. And so this isn't in any book, but it's part of the story. I'm in a, a church service. Uh, the pastor is preaching on the gift of talents. And I forget if, you know, if it comes from maybe Matthew, but if you're, if you have five multiply, and if you have two multiply. And so I'm listening to this in the back row. That's where us who barely made it into church sit. And then he gets to the, the guys with one. And I'm not trying to be humble here. I'm being totally honest with you. I knew I had one talent. I struggled in school. I struggle athletically. I'm, bad with my language. I dangle prepositions. I don't know what I should do professionally. I don't have a whole lot of cash to do it with. So I'm, I'm the one talent guy and he, it's, it's a pretty big church, but it's almost like when the light goes on you and dims on everybody else. Some of us have been in a situation kind of like that. You feel like the person is speaking to you. Yeah. So man, this guy's talking at me and he says, and if you've got one, guess what? Don't bury it. You're called to multiply. You're called to use the gifts that God has given you for a cause bigger than yourself, to be chiseled, Rob, to be chiseled, man, to be made anew. And so I'm like kind of blown away by this message. And then two days later, I'm doing my thing, kind of ignoring it, and the phone rings. So that in my mind, like my faith view, I realize everybody on your podcast comes in with different faith backgrounds. Correct. But in my faith view, that's God, man. Yeah. In the form of a third grade girl, Scott saying, did you listen on Sunday? And I said back, yes. And it has led to the best of my journey going forward. So I got to ask you was, cause you've spoken in front of the, you know, you know, 
tens, would you say millions, two, a couple million people, right? You spoke in front of you know, that many people, right. right? Was that presentation to that Girl Scout troop your most intimidating presentation you've ever done? <laughs> no. I okay. mean, it was, it was as nervous as I've been, but I've been equally nervous many times. I, I, I spoke yesterday in Tennessee to a group of a couple hundred general managers of McDonald's organizations. Yeah. And these are ladies and gentlemen who who started at age 15, for the most part, working on the fryers. Yeah. And you, you take a job like that frequently because you need to for your family and for your life and for your wellness. These, these are folks who've been through the fires of life have endured that and now are called to serve those who are also going through struggles so that together they can become a far better version of, of themselves to impact community at whole. So like, man, I, I was humbled yesterday to be among leaders. I was really nervous uh, when I speak at prisons. Yeah, I'm pretty nervous when I speak at prisons. You and I come together through Brian Buffini, a guy that I love. I love yeah. Buffini, but I love him enough that every time he invites me to speak, I'm nervous. Yeah. I used to be nervous for how Girl Scouts or inmates or managers or real estate agents might feel about me. Would the real estate agents like John O'Leary? That was the real concern I had maybe when Buffini first had me in. Would they like me? Now I'm not worried about that at all. I really don't care, Rob, if you or your other agents like me. I just, I don't care. Yeah. I care deeply though, that the message, something within this stirs something within you and you you hold fast to something even bigger than yourself. That's it's, it jars you to do more, to be more, to love more, to make more, not to buy more, but to give back more. Yeah. Like I feel a ton of anxiety around that, but it's not around, is my shirt tucked in? It's around, is this message waking people up to the fullness of their life? That's incredible, John. I, I can feel the energy coming through the screen right now. I can feel the heart and the intensity of it. I'm so, again, honored that, that you would sit, spend the time and talk to me today. So I've got to ask you, when you spoke, when you finished speaking to that group, the, the, the Girl Scouts, or maybe it was, it was as early as when you said yes, had, did you feel like you, like you, you let yourself out, or like you got out of jail free? Did, <laughs> did you feel that way at all? No, dude. I, you and I talked about the the. Imp- the imp- what is it? Not imprison. The uh, imposter. The imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. And we were talking before we recorded. Like, man, we both deal with that from time to time. I still deal with that from time to time. And I told my general manager friends yesterday in Nashville, me too. Sometimes I don't feel like I belong. So it was not when I said yes to the Girl Scouts that I was liberated from that. It was not when I walked in front of them. It was a, a ten minute presentation. I looked down the entire time, read my notes. About eight of the 10 minutes, I was talking about Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) Back then, dude, I couldn't embrace the fullness of my story. So I told someone else's. Yeah. And yet it was just enough of mine and just enough conviction that one of the dads said, wow, that was something, man. Would you share more? And I said, yes, and yes, and yes. And eventually what happens is that when you say yes enough to life, eventually you recognize the life you need to say yes to is the one staring back at you in the mirror. That that's the one ultimately you've got to embrace fully. And so in saying yes to others, I began to recognize the dignity of my own story. Yeah, that's incredible. I'm just, uh, thank you for sharing that. John, I want to share something with you because I've, I've read the, I've read the book a couple of times, but obviously preparation for our conversation, I wanted to go through it again. And I love at the end of the book, when you were, I guess you were asked how you felt about your parents writing the book. And I'm talking about the book Overwhelming Odds, right. and and you take the you you said I, I you talked about being you're getting a shower, standing in the mirror, and the steam coming off. Then you you got to see yourself for who you really are, and then it was when you you were able to accept who you are, just who John O'Leary is inside, not outside. That was a big that was a big moment for you as well. Correct. Well, man, it, so it has been. You could probably look at it 18 or 19 years since I wrote those words. And about 17 or 18 since I read those words. So it's been a minute since I've been in my mom and dad's book. But what I'll say about it is it changed my life for sure. Um, Not only that shower. Don't turn us off right now. We're not going to go all X-rated on you. But (laughs) but what Rob is referring to is, you're on the the podcast right now with a guy whose body is warped by burns. And so it's scarred. And I remember the day, the thing you're referencing, looking into a mirror that is all covered in steam. And as I'm drying off, I'm looking at the steam and I see the image of an ordinary, good looking guy staring back. 
like, oh, look at me. Foggy. <laughs> Nothing's really coming clear, but I look ordinary. And then it becomes a little bit less foggy, less foggy, less foggy until finally I can see myself. Broken goods and all. And there was something in that shower that day for the first time I recognized, man, there's there's beauty in the beauty in the brokenness, beauty in the scars. That was a turning point. Reading my mom and dad's book was a turning point. Realizing God's hand in our story was a turning point. Being in church when the guy is talking about, hey, you want talent people multiply. That was a turning point. The three Girl Scouts turning point too frequently. And I've realized many of our listeners are, are real estate agents and professionals in that world. We think it's going to be one thing like one training program or one good open house or one right contact or one right client engagement. It's not. It's the little things done right over time that change our life. And that's a big deal. But the bigger deal is doing that same kind of work right over time for others changes not only our life and their life, but the world. And that may sound like pie in the sky, but I believe it to be true. I've seen it lived out. Even your book, Better than you think. It's a collection of stories about individual lives done well over time, changing the world. In fact, thank you for mentioning that. I appreciate that. And and you're doing it and you continue to do it. I mean, 18 years ago, did you see yourself where you are today? Oh, man, 18 years ago, I see, saw myself hoping that those Girl Scouts would give me some Samoas and they failed me. And then hoping the Rotary Club would give me a $25 gift card to Shell. <laughs> and I was still in business and they did not. It, it was it was ultimately not about what I could get out of it, but what I could pour into it, even back then. Yeah. And the reason, if you're like, well, dude, uh, okay, let's talk about this, John. You've got a top 10 podcast. You've got two number one best-selling books. You've, you've got this speaking channel, millions of people. So there's been some success. Talk about that. We could, but the reality is all that success is, is the derivative. It's, it's the net sum of serving the one in front of you. That's yeah. all. Even the reason I met you is because I got to meet Brian Buffini. The reason right. I met Brian Fe Buffini is because I met his COO, I think a guy named Mike Lopez. The reason I met him is because I was serving a volunteer organization in San Diego. This, all this work wasn't to man, how do I, how do I meet Buffini and get in front of a big crowd? Cause that's going to be the turning point. There was a volunteer organization in San Diego that said, would you come and share? Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And there happened to be a guy in the room who was moved named Mike. And Mike introduced me to his boss, Brian. And Brian introduced me to his friend, Robin, onward and onward from there. So, yeah, it's the success of our lives generally is the tail of the dog. And the, the dog itself is significance. If you yeah. pursue the tail, you'll, you'll probably be wagged by it. You'll never find it fully. It will, it will never fill you, that's for sure. But if instead you're pursuing significance, impact being used for good, success will follow. That's profound. And I hope everybody heard that because we all in this day and age, everybody's chasing and chasing for the there, the there, the there. And if, if you got the wrong mentality, this is a thing what I heard you said, if you got the wrong mentality a mindset going after the accomplishment, instead of just serving from a heart, you're, you're going to be wagged instead of wagging. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so John, I asked you, you went back to, I'm going to go back to the church conversation. You're in church. He's talking about the towns, which is one of my favorite readings or gospel readings. And you said, you said, if you got the one, don't bury it. Did you believe you only had one or, and if you did, if it was just one, well, at that point in time, what was that one talent? <laughs> the one talent I had back then was probably uh, joyful optimism, even when I, I didn't mean it. And it's a mistake some people make is to think that just because O'Leary smiles from stage or his podcasts are usually tailored toward living inspired, or he writes life-giving newsletters or books, like, yeah, and he struggles mightily. And in the midst of the storm, even back then, I could put on a pair of work boots, go to work and have a smile on my face. So the one benefit that I had, the one talent that I possessed was even when I did not feel like it, I could show up with a smile on my face. Yeah. And you talk about joy, right? You talk about the joy. You could you could experience the joy in it, correct? Well, yeah. And, and it, I think it's important to to differentiate between joy and happiness. Happiness is is selling the house above listing. Come on, people. <laughs> High five. Let's, let's go for beers tonight. Like that's happiness. And that's not a bad thing. But what happens when the listing doesn't sell or when they go in a different direction or the markets change? Like, because it will happen. Yes. For those of us who have been in the business, it has happened. History tragically has a way of repeating itself 
it might be happening currently. It certainly will happen in the future. And then the happiness fades. So I'm not a big happiness guy. I'm, I'm far more into joy. Joy is more resilient and allow, it allows you to smile, to give thanks, to praise, even during the days that are difficult. And, and what does joy look like in the struggle? What does that look like? Um, hope. Hope, as I understand it, is not that it's easy now. It's that there's reason to dance. There's possibility tomorrow and that you have agency to advance toward that. So that, that that's really important. It doesn't yeah. mean today is easy. I don't think it is. I think most days are a street fight. Like this is tough stuff called life, marriage, ugh, singleness, <laughs> ugh, addiction. Ugh. Like all of it is bad. All of it's hard sometimes. And yet through the proper lens, all of it is worthy. So, yeah. so joy is recognizing the worth of not only the work and the relationship and your spiritual journey and finances and charitable giving, but your life and the ability to be used for good while you are above ground. Yeah, it's uh, I have discussions frequently with people between the difference between joy and happiness. And some people don't want to see the difference. And, and you nailed it on the head there. So thank you for doing that. Um John, if I could go backwards a little bit, you over the course of those surgeries, over the course in the hospital, you had a lot of people helping. You had a lot of people that were heroes to you to get you through it, correct? Oh, man. Bookloads of individuals, as you know. So, yes. So one of my favorite stories, because I'm a baseball guy, one of my favorite stories is the Jack Buck story. Uh, and so you were, you were, it was early in the process, right? And this guy, Jack yes. Buck, who for all the audience, if you don't know, was the play-by-play uh, -play announcer for the St. Louis Cardinals, right? Yes. And he's in the hall of fame. And if, can you share a little bit of that? And I guess what I'm going to go there, like you were a Cardinals fan, you were a kid, you're an athlete at the time. And Jack Buck is coming because he heard your story. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost an impossible story. And in fact, there's chatter about turning this into a, like a, the whole thing into a movie. And some of the folks who have read the script are like, yeah, but we got to make it believable. And the shocking thing about the script is none of it is exaggerated. Not, not, there's not a whisper of poetic license where you add eh, it. No, no, it happened. And to me, it's, it's grace and it's goodness and it's human beings showing up and serving. And what happens when you love the one in front of you? Like it's a really big deal. So for the folks who don't know the name Jack Buck, you may know his son. You may not like his son. I love Joe. But his son, <laughs> Joe, calls the Super Bowl and the World Series and other big games. And he's a big-time announcer. Well, his daddy was even bigger. He's a Hall of Famer in seven different sports broadcasting. This guy was everywhere. And he lived in St. Louis, which means he broadcast the St. Louis Cardinals, which was my team growing up. The way you used to broadcast sports was on the radio. So he's the radio announcer. And I find myself not only getting burned, but ultimately in a hospital bed, tied down, can't move. My eyes are swollen shut, can't see. And I can't talk because there's a trach. <sighs> Sound like Darth Vader when I breathe. I can't breathe. I can't communicate. I can't do anything. But I could pray. I could dream. Uh, and I could listen. And, and as a little guy growing up in the Midwest, and I know you're a big baseball fan. Well, me too. The voice I, I cherished was the voice of Jack. And on the day after I get burned, the door opens up from the outside of this little hospital room. Somebody walks in, they sit down, they pull up a chair, they cough. And then I hear the voice of the radio announcer for the St. Louis Cardinals, not on the radio, but in my bedroom. And the, the voice says to me, kid, wake up, wake up. You are going to live. Keep fighting. John O'Leary day at the ballpark will make it all worthwhile. Kid, are you listening? Keep fighting. And then this announcer stands. He walks out. He leaves a child tied down in darkness. On fire. <laughs> Literally on fire for life. I wrote a book four years ago called On Fire. Not because I got burned, but because how God used ordinary individuals, including Jack Buck, for a mighty purpose. Like it's a it's a crazy story. It's unfreaking believable. <laughs> it's on fire. It's it on is. fire. And Jack is part of it. And, and just to put a bow on this, he is told that day in the in as he walks out that that the little boy is going to die. And when that news shows up in your real estate business or in your family or in our nation, you know we're all we're all going to die. More at ten o'clock tonight on the news. When that news shows up, 
what you do next influences what happens next. What Jack does after he is told that the little boy is going to die is he takes it home. He cries. Please write it down, agents. He prays. <laughs> he reflects and he journals on one question. And the question was, what more can I do to make tomorrow better than today? Like that's a really important question to ask as a broker, as an agent, as a spouse, as a single person, as an addict, as a dreamer, as an overcomer, as a person of faith, as a non-believer. What more can I do to make tomorrow better than today? One thing. We, we get too confused with, well, we need to elect a new, but no, no, no. What more can I do to make tomorrow better than today? Stop waiting for Trump or Biden or the governor of California, or whatever you're waiting on, your parent to say, I'm sorry, stop waiting. Take ownership. You have agency. Going back to hope, you have agency. What more can I do? So Jack Buck asked this question. And the following day, there's a little dying boy in a hospital bed named John O'Leary who has the door open up from the outside, who has a friend walk in, who sits down next to him. And for the second day in a row says the words, kid, wake up. I'm back. You're going to live. You're going to survive. Keep fighting. John O'Leary day at the ballpark. We'll make it all worthwhile. Keep fighting. And then Robbie comes back, chisels a little bit more, and then a little bit more the fourth day, and then a little bit more. This guy visited me for the next five and a half months. Just kept showing up and serving one chisel at a time, changing a little boy's life. And can we talk about the baseballs? Because that's that's powerful. I'll go where you want, man. I'll, I'll share yeah. as much or as little as you like. Yeah, so, so, so he just explained who Jack Buck is, the enormity of, of his vocation and what he does. And this guy spending every – for the next five and a half months, comes in every day. But John had to have his fingers amputated, so they wanted – Jack Buck was encouraging you to trying to get you to write. Correct. Yes. And in order to do that, he started, he talked about having, was it Ozzy, 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 uh, I almost said Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy yeah, I wish it was Ozzy Osbourne. That ball would be real simple, man. So Ozzy, Ozzy Osbourne's one time in jail, he was wearing a St. Louis blues jersey. So okay. Really for us in St. Louis. Uh, Ozzy Smith was the first ball we received. Uh, you may remember as I'm telling the story that Jack made the promise of John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. Yes. And he lived into it and he had me downtown and he introduced me to all the ball players, and we broadcast the ball game together that night. And he learned as we're doing this work that the little boy has a goofy grin on his face, but that's about it. I'm in a wheelchair. My fingers are gone. I can't move. I can't go back to school. I'm a victim to circumstance. Like, that's just, that's the situation here, people. Yeah. And Jack knew how to break me free. So he sends me a baseball signed by Ozzy. Below the ball was a note that read, kid, if you want a second baseball, write a thank you letter to the man who sent the first. And, you know, I can't, I can't write. He knew that. Uh -huh. But he also knew the power of motivation. And every successful agent tuning in knows the power of motivation. It gets you to do things you did not want to do. We give, I think we give too much credit to feelings. And like, I don't think I want to do that. Well, motivation and leadership is not always about what you want to do. Jack got me to do what I did not want to do. <laughs> like That's leadership embodied, man. For the first time since being burned, two therapists push again. Like the reason I'm underwhelmed by my own story, by the word John, is because I did very little by myself. Two therapists push my hands together. They broke through the scar tissue we wrote a note to Ozzy, mailed it off, and two days later, we got a second baseball. That said, kid, if you want a third baseball. So the therapist came into my room. They pushed my poor little hands together. It got a little easier. We wrote another note, got a third baseball. Then we got a fourth baseball. And because your listeners have a life, I'll go through this quickly. 1987, Jack <laughs> sent me 60 baseballs. Six zero teaching a little nobody that there is no such thing like your life matters act like it act like it that's powerful that's that's i get tears in my eyes thinking about it just one being a baseball guy but the meaning of that guy coming in and seeing you and inspiring you and uh and pushing you through something you didn't want to do and then and now you get you, you get out of the hospital and you have john o'leary day at, at, at the ballpark that's right, right. What was that like? I mean, I know you're bandaged up and you're in the wheelchair, but you're at the ballpark with Jack Buck. 
Dude, it was exactly. awesome, man. I got a picture of it on the wall behind me. And and 30 years to the day later, the St. Louis Cardinals had me speak to their organization. And then as part of that, uh, throughout the first pitch. It's, so it's amazing to think that a little boy who never imagined walking again, let alone riding again, let alone go, getting a job or having a little girl hold his hand or whatever else the dreams are when you're a kid, all those came to pass and more. And now he has the opportunity to speak into that same organization and go onto the mound and throw out the ball. So like it's full circle life, man. It's, it's unbelievable. But the night of that, that game, what I remember most distinctly was this. Uh, he rolls me into the players only clubhouse, like players only underline. <laughs> and the first guy in line is a guy named Whitey Herzog, who was the Cardinals manager. And we meet him and he shakes my hand and he makes me feel like I'm part of the club. And then I think we're going to turn around, but Jack pushes me straight on in. And next up is Ozzie Smith, number one. And then the, next to that is number two. It's, it's Red Shandings. One by one, he rolls me around the players only clubhouse. And I meet the greats. And they bend down and they shake the hand of a broken dude. And they make him feel like he's part of the club. And I'll, I mean, come on, man. It's 36 years ago or what? Like, I still get tears in my eyes Yeah, because the, those are the guys that I looked up to. And, and um, you don't forget that as a kid, when you feel like you're unworthy, but these people are treating you like you're one of them. Yeah. That's oh God. It's so heartwarming. So thank, thank you for sharing that story. I love that. And then what, what we had the whole Babe Ruth, the hockey player guy. Can we talk about that real quick? <laughs> Yeah, man, we'll, we'll do it quick because, uh, you know, I know people have houses to sell and lives to live. So here we go. Buckle up, people. Uh, <laughs> the Babe Ruth analogy, for those of you who don't know it, Babe Ruth was a, a baseball player. And you may be thinking that right now Rob's got his chiseled analogies off, but he doesn't. <laughs> he, here's the analogy. A guy named Gino Cavallini is a hockey player for the Blues. And one of the cool things Jack did is – when you're a busy broadcaster, you can't be there every day. So he would nominate people to visit when he could not. And I hope the mistake we make is listening to a podcast thinking, doggone, John's got a good story. The lesson here is applicable in yours. I promise you, you don't have to apply it, but there's a lesson somewhere to apply within your own marriage or singleness or business or like life. Even though Jack was busy, he nominated people to serve when he could not. One of the individuals he nominated was the football Cardinals coach, a guy named Gene Stallings, a very busy guy who had a couple days off. So he would come by and serve. A couple of those guys on the football team would come by and serve. A couple of the St. Louis Blues would serve. The owner of the St. Louis Blues would serve all because Jack Buck. And one of the players was named Gino. So Gino comes into this room and we become buddies. And occasionally he would just swing by the hospital and check on me before game day. And on one of the games, he was, uh, he was clearly aware that this little boy was in need of, a, of some encouragement. I had back surgery. They did skin grafts. So they had to put me on my belly for two weeks. And after a couple of weeks, I don't care how tough you are, when you've been on your belly and you've been through the ringer twice already, and now you're on your stomach and you're just discouraged. I'm down, man. I'm probably down for the count and he can pick up on this. So this humble man on his knees looks up through the hole in the bed and says, how you doing, superstar? <laughs> so I lie and say, awesome. I'm awesome. And this guy who knew better looks back and says, tell you what, superstar. In tonight's game, I'm going to do something cool for you. I'm, I'm going to score you a goal. And I knew he's not going to score. He's not a goal scorer. He's a tough guy. So through my morphine, I say back to him, Gino, <laughs> do us both a favor. Get in a fight instead. You know, that, that is something this man can manage. Then that's not in the book, John. That part's not in the book. That's a true story. You can ask him. The that's man great. is still alive and still my friend. So that night, Gino Cavallini, after making a commitment, he says, tell you what, superstar, I can't, if I can't score a goal, I promise you, dude, I will get in a fight. <laughs> So this 26-year-old Canadian-born hockey player, now with the Blues, first period of the game after making that commitment, kept the promise, Rob. He's chiseled, baby. And he gets in a fight. And I remember thinking as a little boy laid down in this hospital bed, wait until my friends back at school hear about this. <laughs> this hockey player, man, gets in a fight for me. 
Like that was a big deal. And if a story ends there, it's, it's sweet, but you introduced it by what it ultimately becomes uh, in the third period of the score, this guy who never scores goals. It's unlikely that he will that night in the third period, kept the promise breaks the two, two tie St. Louis blues end up winning the game against the hated Detroit Red Wings, three to two. Gino Cavallini is the reason why we score. He is the one who put the puck in the back of the net after he scored, he started crying. This is just a beautiful, tender part of the story. And after he scores and starts crying, so do the four other teammates on the ice with him. Gino, I mean, this is just real, man. Gino left the hospital that day, pulls his little RX-7 up to the, to the, <laughs> the gym or whatever this thing is, comes in, and all the 24 guys are around getting ready, t- skates taped up, and he says, hey, fellas, I need your attention. I screwed up. I made a commitment. I don't know how I'm going to live into it, but I need your help. And then he told the story of John O'Leary. And then he told the story of this little boy on his, on his belly dying. And then he told the story of I made a commitment to him, boys, and I can't do it by myself. So that night, 25 guys skated as one. It's a beautiful story. And so when Gino scored, it wasn't he who scored. It was the team. Like that's yeah. agents. A really important thing to recognize going back to the dog and tail analogy. And I never use that, but it's appropriate. Yeah. They weren't going for the tail. They were going for the dog. They were going for significance. They were going for impact and they accomplished it. And St. Louis blues and generally speaking, hockey players as a whole love to celebrate victories at bars. (laughs) That's where the party rages. Well, that night, Gino and the St. Louis blues celebrated not at a bar, but at a hospital. And oh not with God. girls, but with a nine-year-old little boy named John O'Leary. Not with, with booze, but with pizza and soda. Uh-huh. And they parted with the little guy named John until 2.30 in the morning. The last guy, and I'll leave you with this. The last guy on his knees looks up. His name was Gino. And he says to me, how you doing now, superstar? <laughs> and I look back and I said, Awesome. <laughs> And it's a true story. And that wasn't a lie. That awesome was not a lie, right? And here's the key thing. My friends were being chiseled, made into something new, better today than you were yesterday. Nothing changed. But everything changed. Yeah. That's the way it goes in life. Nothing really changed. But but up here, like this is where the, the fight is fought. Yeah. And so my mindset changed and Gino and Jack and Roy, the nurse and my parents and the Pope John Paul II wrote letters. Ronald Reagan wrote letters. He and his wife, Nancy, like it was a community effort to encourage a little boy with no chance to fight forward. And eventually that little boy believed awesome, awesome and lived into it. John, you're awesome. Thank you for sharing that story. So I'm going to ask you a couple more questions here. The, so here you are, a nine-year-old boy. You go through your adolescence, go through your college, and then you say it. You say it in uh, on, online somewhere. I saw it. You you claim your busy, biggest success is the marriage to your wife Beth and the four children. So, at a, there, I'm sure there was a time you thought I may never get married, but you got married. You have four kids. Tell me how fulfilling that is. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, relationship means struggle. <laughs> Yeah, it does. And I just want to be real about it. Like, I don't, I don't want anyone to say, should we should we refer to him as Saint John O'Leary? No, no. <laughs> I think we should probably reserve that for a little bit longer. Uh, marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. My father has had Parkinson's disease for 33 years. That's hard. Yeah. Uh, they're struggling physically, emotionally, in finances. That's hard. What do we do next for them? That's hard. Business. I'm, I'm a small business owner. Leading people is hard. Strategy, hard. Tactics, hard. It's all hard. And it's all good. It's all worthy. So I just want to make sure that you all recognize as I get ready to celebrate my wife and kids. Like, yeah, it is a celebration. And it's there's ups and downs. So the up is this. I have the honor of being married to a girl that I I dreamed of. Literally. Like, she, she's beautiful. She's heart-led. She's faithful. Uh, she's an occupational therapist today. She's a great mom. She's a good listener. Uh, she's smarter than I am. She's more driven than I am. She's more disciplined than I am. The reason I'm as, as successful in the, the worldly terms as I am today is because she keeps me straight, man. 
she just keeps me moving forward. And uh, I'm so fortunate. So uh, the, the short story here is I, I asked her out repeatedly in college. I met her in college, asked her out again and again and again. And almost every time she would say, John, you are like a brother to me. And so I don't know what you've heard about people in Missouri, but it ain't true. So like this was not her way of saying, Let, <laughs> let's let's have it happen, dude. Yeah, yeah. This was her sweet way of saying it's never going to happen. I'm going to always love you, just not like that. So then maybe the follow-up question as we get chiseled again is, well, what changed? Yeah. What changed in her? And let me tell you what changed in her. I changed. I stopped pursuing Beth for me. Because what I recognize looking back on my life, and you only really have clarity looking back on it, is I was pursuing her to cover me up. More of a mask. More of the addiction. More of proof to the world that I'm normal. That's If we're real, that's why I was pursuing this beautiful brunette. To show the world, look at me. Mm -hmm. I can even marry well. Look, look, isn't he awesome? That's really <laughs> what I was doing there. And then when I finally stopped pursuing her to make me whole, the turning point was when I started just loving her to love her. And I know that sounds like that's so cliche, but I'm telling you the truth. Like I just I, unconditionally, I let go of the result and just love the process of being with her, of being her friend, of being her brother, yeah. you know, loving the one in front of me. And I think that change, that confidence that, that exuded from me then. I wasn't wanting anything from her. I was happy to be with her. When we went bowling, awesome. Let's go bowling. Let's have fun. That's what friends should do. And I loved her. Which is probably why years later, we're at dinner, eating outside, and uh, she takes a big swig of wine and says, John, I've got something to say to you. Every time I'm with you, I've got butterflies now. And I don't know why the heck they're there. I wish they would float away, man, but they're there. And I guess I've fallen for you, and would you date me? She asked you to date her? Trust me, and I hold that over her head. Almost like the other <laughs> Like, baby, you're the one that wanted this. Like, I didn't, I didn't set up for this. You're the one that asked me out. Let's never forget that. That's great. So I did say yes. And uh, we dated for two years. We've been married for 19. It's It's been awesome. That's and incredible. the wall behind me is plastered with pictures of Beth and her siblings and mine and our parents and our grandparents and our children. And John O'Leary dated the ballpark, both the one 30 years ago, but then the one 30 years later. Like our life is a mosaic of undeserved blessing after blessing. But rather than saying like, hey, we're unworthy, man, we're just, we just say thank you. Thank we're you. Just, thank you. What a gift. Thank you. You just said the words of undeserving blessing. So, I mean, and you said instead of saying the word unworthy, say thank you. And, and I, I think you could say this humbly. Do you feel you are worthy? <laughs> I, I mean, it depends. Yeah. So when I'm, when I'm, Deeply connected with God, yes. Uh -huh. But on the days where I'm just running fast, no, I don't feel like the reality is you're on the phone with a guy who gets called to speak all over the world. And when I grab a little microphone and I stand out there, I'm like, dang, dude, like, I don't know if I'm, am I worthy of this? I don't think so. Interviewed by podcast leaders, I don't feel worthy. You talked about the books, I don't really feel worthy. However, what I have come to recognize is God uses ordinary broken people for purposes we can't fathom for his perfect will. And what I try to do is to say yes to that. Yeah. And the more I can say yes to that will not mind, the more I recognize the story is worthy. I may not be, I may not be, I'm imperfect, but the story is worthy. And so is the one that, that breathed life into our stories. That's powerful. Thank you for sharing that, John. It's, I just keep thinking of all the stuff I want to ask you right now. No one have, you know, we could. You said you don't have you have unlimited time, but no, I'm just joking there. But uh, it's great to share that, and I'm moved by it. I'm inspired by it. And you in the book, in the book, overwhelming odds, which is what I guess 15 years ago was written, in that same category when you talked about uh, when I brought up about the um, you, you seeing yourself for who you were. You also later on in that same chapter, you, you make the comment, you talk about the um, gosh, I forgot what I was going to say here. The, um, the the idea of what the book was really about and God using you to yeah. to get this message across, even though you may feel you're unworthy at times or not worthy. I don't want to use the word unworthy versus not worthy. He's using you. He's using you 
to send this message out. He's using you in a big way, right? In a big way. And you're so humble and modest about it. I love it. But you've been through hell and back, right? Yeah, it's, hard, it's hard to admit that, but it, it is reality. And the, the way I'm grounded in that truth is when folks hear podcasts like the one you're doing, Rob, oftentimes they'll reach back out to us afterwards and say, hey, John, nothing like your story, but. And then they'll share abuse or addiction or bipolar or depression or suicide ideation or bankruptcy or a million things that people deal with. Frequently, those include literally being burned. And so we have an opportunity now of serving in burn communities and walking into these burn centers. And like, I, I walk in to visit these kids and I'm like, I, I don't know how they're going through what they're going through. Cause I could not, I could yeah. not. And then in the next breath, like, but you did, you did. And I, hundred percent burn 87% third. Like that's, it is unsurvivable. And if you do have the miracle of life afterwards, rare is the chance of an abundant life after that. And to be living that, um, it blow, it does humble me. And I just chalked it up for grace and people showing up to serve me. And what I have the opportunity of doing through our work is to remind people that the ordinary things done in love change the world. The reason you, you asked about Jack Buck and you asked about Gino Cavallini and you've probably read about Pope John Paul II or President Reagan. Like those are the big names. But without the janitor doing his job, I die. And yeah. that's not like, well, that's a cute. Thing. Now, I'm not being cute. Yeah. I'm just being real. Uh, without the janitor, I'm dead. Without the CNAs, I'm dead. Without the ordinary in quotes RNs and blood technicians and physical therapists and OTs and respiratory therapists and chaplains and the folks who prep the food and on and on and on and on. So the cool thing about our story and it's ours, I very seldom use the word my, is that we remind people that their life matters. And in a culture last year, 2022, 1.4 million Americans attempted suicide. Mm. Four days ago, as you and I record this, my neighbor um, unfortunately took his own life. We get to remind people, we get to remind people that God's not done with them yet, that he's still chiseling something beautiful out of them and that their best days are in front of them. And that is a calling. I don't take it lightly. I don't take it um, superficially. And um, I hope your listeners don't either. You are being chiseled. It's better than you think. And the best is yet to come. Mm. And thank you for sharing that emotion there, John. As we're recording this 10 days ago, I lost a good friend of mine to the same thing, suicide. And it's, uh, it's, it's gut wrenching, heartbreaking. And, and, you know, like you said, people matter and we have to realize we all matter. I got a buddy, it's got, he's on a, you matter movement and his goal is to impact the lives of a billion people. And, uh, I'll I'll throw an introduction out there if you're okay with that. Um, and his name's Mark Brodinsky, Mark Brodinsky. And uh, I, w- I will make that introduction, but it's uh, it's amazing that we need to all know that we matter. And and, and I'm going to ask you two questions here. And I, I know it, it's, it's probably hard for you to hear it this way. And maybe not, but because I, I, I know you're a humble guy, but do you believe you're a miracle? <laughs> yes, uh, un- unequivocally. And the important thing is, and our work is really all grounded in this. The cool thing is people can look at John and say, gosh, I I get that he's probably a miracle. Like it's pretty unlikely this thing comes to pass. But my job is to hold up a big old mirror and say, no, 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 no. I stand here on this podium holding up a mirror, reminding you of that truth in your life. And so lots of ways to view it. Maybe the simplest way is your life, which many of us take for granted. Of course I have life. The likelihood of you being here is I'll get the math wrong. I think it's one in 4.2 trillion is the likelihood of you being born. Because if you take the likelihood of your mother, we won't go through all the biology here. People, right, right. <laughs> 20,000 eggs. Your father has a lot of goodies swimming around his life, man. So then Because your DNA is only one of those two things. It's only mm-hmm. one in one and that equaled you. If they did not come together at the right moment with Frank Sinatra singing in the background and pink champagne on the ice, like in the hotel room, you're not here. And if your parents' parents had not done the same and their parents, the likelihood of you being here is nil, nil. And then we curse the Starbucks barista because they made it on ice (laughs) when we ordered it hot. (laughs) Or we yawn through the day and like, what the heck, dude, this traffic on the, on the interstates crushing me. 
Life is a sacred gift. Start with that. And it gets better from there. So yeah, it's not, am I a miracle? You're darn right. I'm a miracle, but so are you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And then you had, we talked about all the heroes you had in your life, right? All these people from the janitor to CNs, nurses, all those people were heroes to you. Right. And, and even, and then the bigger names too. Again, another, I guess, modest type of humble question is, do you think that they ever see you as their hero? Yeah. I I don't like, I don't like that, but uh, yes. I, I know. I know. It's a hard question to say yes to, but it's, it's, you, you talk about being real. I think that's real. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, the hardest thing in life is to say thank you. Mm-hmm. Like, just thank you. And, and there's an old uh, minister, I think, Eichhardt, maybe, Meister Eichhardt, who said, if the only prayer you ever offer is thank, thank you. you, that prayer is enough. Yeah. Thank you. So when you hear something where someone says something beautiful about you, the arrogant among us say, oh, that's correct. The sheepish among us say, it's not true. But the pragmatic and the real and faithful among us say, you know, undeserved, but but thank you, because it's true. So when I asked Joe Buck, who is a you know celebrity in and of his own right, I said, Dad, Joe, why did why did dad keep coming back? Why did he keep coming back? And he said two things. Number one, he said, every time he came into your life, he would see something in your eye that he longed for in his own. Like that's a big deal. Wow. So every time he came back, he saw something within your eyes. And then separately. And it made him feel better about the work that he was doing. Because a lot of times we just get beat down by life and travel and spring training and calling games and doesn't matter. And yet then he visits this kid and he realizes, let's keep going. Let's do it well. So if that's true in Jack, uh, I'm sure it's true in the CNA and the RN and the food prep service folks and everybody else. That's great. That's great. Thank you for answering it that, that way too. And so a couple more questions before I let you go here. I want to get into real quick your book. In awe, because I love the word awe. I, I me personally, I look forward to, I look to be in awe every day. I look to be in awe in nature, in people, in activities, in my kids, in my dog. Uh, I just look to be in awe of God's miracles and his, I call it magic, call it his wonder. Tell me, just, it says, in awe, rediscover your childlike wonder to an unleash inspiration, meaning, and joy. What, what does it mean for you to be in awe? Mm. Well, man, if for those of us able to, and I recognize on your on your podcast, maybe not everybody can, right. but for those of us who can open their eyes, if you can wake up and crawl from the bed and look east, and as the light cuts through the darkness in the morning, if you're not in awe of that, it's only because you're not paying attention. Only. Yeah. Don't say, well, yeah, yeah, but you don't live in New Jersey. It's not that good of a... No, no, but BS. If you can't be in awe of the world turning so rapidly that it spins around, somehow keeping you implanted onto it as you stay in a warm bed or in the summertime, frequently a cool bed, and you pull back the drapes and you see the sunrise and the birds sing, if you aren't blown back by that, it's only because you've chosen to be bored by your life. So let's start in the morning. Let's wake up a little bit earlier. Let's step onto the screen porch or the front porch or the back porch, whichever way the sun's going to rise next and come out there in the darkness. And because everybody else is sleeping, your neighbors will be asleep. Your kids, like everybody else is snoozing. The birds aren't. They're going to be singing the praises, man, before the sun is even up. I'm I'm always taken aback because I wake up before the sunrise and it's only me and the birds partying. (laughs) They're chirping away because they know what's coming next, man. They're singing the praises before it even happens. And there's just something so cool about that in the morning. So when I think about an awe, I think about a bird knowing what's going to happen before it even does. But why allow them to be the only ones that know? Join them. Join the celebration, right? But that, that's true. And then I, I look, I wrote the book. So you may say, well, why'd you write in awe? I wrote the book because I saw in my children what I did not see frequently in the mirror. And what I very rarely saw with the adult population, children are shocked by the beauty of a sunrise. Yeah. Like they're like, what? what is it on fire? <laughs> it's not on fire. It's just the way it looks. What? And then when it finally goes up and it slowly comes back down, the question they'll frequently ask at sunset is like, well, can we do that again tomorrow? Like that was, that was awesome. Can we do it again tomorrow, dad? 
when you take them on a walk around the block, my wife and I have been walking our same block. It, it takes us nine minutes. When <laughs> I would take my kids, it would take two hours because every leaf, every bug, every rock, like everything is like, oh, dad, did you see that? Yeah. It's all, all, all of it. And then after you lap the block enough, you miss it. And when you lap the block enough entire, it bores you. And then after you lap the block enough, it makes you miserable. Because like life, man, it's just, it, it's crap. It's hard. She's not good to me anymore. Biden, fr freaking Trump, Bush, <laughs> Clinton, whoever you want to blame your problems on in life. You have plenty to blame them on, don't you? Yeah. Children don't. They don't know yet that, that yet. They don't know they can blame it on somebody. So they don't. They view it all through the lens of awe and wonder and joy. So in awe invites us back to that place in life when we once felt that life was good. And it's an invitation to feel that way again. Well, I hope everybody picks that book up and I haven't read it yet. So I can't wait to read it. And the last thing I'll say about that is when I think of what you, the story you're just telling there is I, there was a, uh, the, the movie patch Adams and Dr. Mendelson says, he gives you, do you see four? What do you see? And I go, see what no one else sees, see what no one else sees to be in all. I believe we have to see what others don't see. Right. right? And I think it's a powerful line. So, John, before I let you go here, I, I'm going to ask you one more question. I ask everybody the same question. It's pr pretty much rhetorical. But how much more chiseling do you got going on in your life? <laughs> and I, uh, I have a picture to my left of, uh, of the return of the prodigal son. So, oh, my God. So I got one to the right, John. I got to tell you. I'm looking to the right of my computer right now. I got the same picture. Rembrandt? Yes. So I read a book by Henry Nouwen, which I'm sure you've read called The Return. I got it right here. <laughs> Such a good book, man. And I don't know where I am in that picture, but I'm for those who don't know, like there's a it's a picture of a boy coming home from doing everything wrong in the world twice. And his sandals missing and his hair is shaved because he's a slave. And he's skinny because he's impoverished and he's busted and damaged goods. And that's a beautiful image of John O'Leary. And there's a picture of a guy off to the side, this cynical, well-mannered boy who's done everything right. And he's stoic and his hands are held clutched to his side, judgmentally looking down at the boy who came home, wondering why would he come home? He should have stayed away. He's no good to anybody. Certainly not me. That's the older son. And I'm frequently that guy too, frequently judging others. But right there in the middle of the picture, and you're looking at it, Rob, in this red robe, looking down with nothing but grace and love is the father. And his right hand is dainty and feminine and tender. And Rembrandt doesn't screw up. And his left hand is thick and deep and masculine. And Rembrandt doesn't mess up. And it's this father pulling this broken boy forward saying, come on home. Come on home. So I recognize as we chisel additionally, I got to become the dad. And I ain't there yet. I'm kneeling, broken, and I'm upright judging, but I'm trying to get better. And so I got some work to do. And, and uh, if you want to do that work with me, I, I'm just going to throw out my website because I do want to make sure people can stay in touch. I was going to ask you to do that. Thank this you. Is, this, is where, this is where we chisel, chisel together. So two websites. One is called John O'Leary Inspires.com. So John O'Leary Inspires.com. And there you'll find links to our podcasts and newsletter and all that kind of stuff. The other link though, when I don't always offer, but I think for your community, it's cool. It's called read in So read in I N awe.com. And the reason I'm giving that one is because there, there's a 21 day challenge to get chiseled. And I don't mean your apps, but <laughs> You get a little bit more chiseled in life. And so if you want to check out our work, you can go to johnolearyinspires.com or readinaw.com and we'll get chiseled together. That's awesome. John, thank you so much. I am, I'm so honored that you would spend the time with me because sometimes I don't feel worthy, right? <laughs> and, and thank you for being on here. Thank you for sharing your story. I know I could go on for another hour. I know I could. And, uh, and, and then cap it off with the prodigal son story. I, I mean, I'm dead. I mean, I'm looking right at the picture right now. In my What's the chance, man? That, what like, is it? again, it's a God thing. And we yeah. pretend like, hey, there's no reason for life. And we would rather believe in the Big Bang, which I'm not saying it didn't happen, but what caused that? What caused life to take root? We'd rather believe in just chance occurrence than the fact that we are here on purpose with purpose. Yeah. And the fact that you and I bumped into each other and, and volunteerism in San Diego led to Lo Lopez, led to Buffini, led to you, led to your listeners, led to you and I just partying together today, talking about the prodigal father. 
Yeah. It's not chance, dude. It's not chance. <laughs> I'm grateful, John. I'm grateful. So until next time, everybody, let's go get chiseled. You just got chiseled with Rock on the sure to like this podcast, share it with your friends, and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Also, you can find Rob's book on Amazon, Better Than Equal.